You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 11th day of February, 2022, and you are tuned into episode 411 of The Corbett Report podcast, States of Emergency. Now, the average person doesn't know about it, because why would they? But there is, in fact, a lengthy and voluminous tradition in the field of legal scholarship debating the question of states of exception and states of emergency, and how they interact with and impinge upon the legal order of various jurisdictions. For example, you could turn back to the 12th century, where the Benedictine monk Gratian wrote in his Decretum that, If something is done out of necessity, it is done licitly, since what is not licit in law, necessity makes licit. Likewise, necessity has no law. Or we could turn to Thomas Aquinas, who wrote uh, the following century, in the 13th century, in his Summa Theologica. If the observance of the law according to the letter does not involve any sudden risk needing instant remedy, it is not the business of anyone whatsoever to expound what is useful and what is not useful to the state. Those alone can do this who are in authority, and who, on account of such cases, have the power to dispense from the laws. If, however, the peril be so sudden as not to allow of the delay involved by referring the matter to authority, the necessity itself carries with with it a dispensation, since necessity knows no law. And this line of thinking has continued throughout the centuries, and was, for example, given a more modern formulation by the 20th century Italian legal scholar Santi Romano, who in 1909 wrote, The necessity with which we are concerned here must be conceived of as a state of affairs that at least as a rule and in a complete and practically effective way, cannot be regulated by previously established norms. But if it has no law, it makes law, as another common expression has it, which means that it itself constitutes a true and proper source of law. It can be said that necessity is the first and originary source of all law, such that by comparison the others are to be considered somehow derivative, and it is to necessity that the origin and legitimation of the legal institution par excellence, namely the state, and its constitutional order in general, must be traced back, when it is established as a de facto process, for example, on the way to revolution. And what occurs in the initial moment of a particular regime can also repeat itself, though in an exceptional way, and with more attenuated characteristics, even after the regime has formed and regulated its fundamental institutions. Oh, okay, all right, so whatever. There's some sort of legal scholarship tradition of talking about states of emergency and states of exception and necessity uh, giving rise to law or necessity has no law. Whatever, that's all airy-fairy nonsense. What does this have to do with us here today in 2022, James? The nation's capital is being characterized as a city under siege. Now, Ottawa's mayor is declaring a state of emergency as demonstrations in the shadow of Parliament Hill that started against COVID-19 mandates show no signs of ending anytime soon. This is a nationwide insurrection. At a meeting of Ottawa's police services board this weekend, the chief said his force is starting to buckle under the strain of what critics have called a lawless occupation. A police service under the Police Service Act was never created. The legislation supporting the Police Service Act was never contemplated. The oath of office that I and my officers swore were never intended to deal with a city under siege. Of course we want police to reflect on the constitutional implications of intervening, but I think what we're talking about here has far exceeded you know, what's reasonable as far as a constitutionally protected uh, assembly or right of expression. Ah, uh, yes, that kind of 
state of emergency. The kind where the right of peaceful assembly that is guaranteed by that piece of paper known as the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms can be revoked at a moment's notice because of the deadly threat of um, uh, honking horns and bouncy castles? Emily Tamman is one of the lawyers arguing a class action lawsuit on behalf of downtown residents seeking massive damages and an injunction to stop this. It's disturbing when you see the, the protests turning into what looks like some kind of a fun carnival where they've got bouncy castles and hot tubs and saunas. A complete uh, insult to the people who are putting up with this nonsense for the last seven days and it shows a great deal of ins insensitivity. Oh yeah, that kind of state of emergency. Well, if you want more details about what specifically is happening, you can turn to Ottawa.ca, which helpfully provides the announcement about Mayor Watson's declaration of this state of emergency, which states that Mayor Jim Watson today declared a state of emergency for the city of Ottawa due to the ongoing demonstration. Declaring a state of emergency reflects the serious danger and threat to the safety and security of residents posed by honking horns and bouncy castles, and highlights the need for support from other jurisdictions and levels of government. It also provides greater flexibility within the municipal administration to enable the City of Ottawa to manage business continuity for essential services for its residents, and enables a more flexible procurement process, which could help purchase equipment required by frontline workers and first responders. All right, and if you're really keen, you can go to Ontario.ca, which provides the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, RSO 1990, Chapter E9, um, which has the definition of emergency, which is operative in this declaration. Namely, emergency means a situation or an impending situation that constitutes a danger of major proportions that could result in serious harm to persons or substantial damage to property and that is caused by the forces of nature a disease or other health risk, an accident, or an act, whether intentional or otherwise. Situation d'urgence. Hmm. Does this sound like such a emergency situation under that criteria? It certainly doesn't to anyone with their head screwed on straight, which is why, if you get some legal opinion on this, you will find that this, this declaration of uh, emergency has... Uh, well, no basis at any rate. And you can, for example, turn to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms at jccf.ca, who you will remember from my conversation with John Carpe last year about Canadian government delays mandatory travel or quarantine on Solutions Watch. Um, but they just had a press release up just hours after this declaration by Mayor Watson. No basis for state of emergency declared by Ottawa Mayor. Uh, which states, the Justice Center today challenged Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson over his accusation that peacefully protesting truckers are a danger of major proportions that could result in serious harm to persons or substantial damage to property. Mayor Watson has not divulged publicly what facts he might rely on to justify his assessment of truckers as posing a danger of major proportions in light of their law-abiding behavior since arriving in Ottawa more than one week ago. And it quotes uh, lawyer Nicholas Wansbutter, this is a truly disturbing overreach and misuse of emergency powers. It then goes on to list some of the, uh, the law-abiding nature of these peaceful protests, including the fact that uh, truckers have been uh, violated and aggressed upon, ha having things stolen and vandalized, which they then report to the police and nothing is done. They've also uh, done such things as feeding homeless and... Uh, and, uh, um, and interacting in ways that are humble, considerate, and peaceful, according to one Ottawa resident um, in that is uh, named in the court action, etc. And it finally, this uh, press release finishes with another quote from Mr. Wansbutter. There is no factual basis to support the mayor's declaration of an emergency. All right, and we could go on, and there's more being added to this every single day as I'm recording. They're talking about seizing fuel from people who are trying to supply fuel to the truckers, etc., and other ways that this is playing out and will continue to play out legally. 
But I want to stress that, of course, this is not just a Canadian phenomenon, that there's a state of emergency which is justifying this incredible, never-before-seen type of action. Of course, this is happening all over the world. And one obvious case in point would be the United States of America, where, as you will recall from recent coverage on New World Next Week, the OSHA mandate for vaccine and testing that was supposed to be operative for large businesses, businesses with over 100 employees, was in fact struck down by the court, so was withdrawn by OSHA. But there's a big caveat there, as I noted at the time in New World Next Week, and then later uh, that weekend on my editorial, do not go back to sleep, this is not the end. This withdrawal of the OSHA vaccine and testing mandate is just a strategic withdrawal designed to placate the public while the agency works behind the closed doors on a permanent COVID-19 healthcare standard and hardwires those mandates into law. But I think something that should not be missed is that the whole debate about Biden's ability to to order OSHA to make this mandate and the way that they tried to rush it in the back door without any public comment or, or uh, uh, in- input was based on emergency orders, emergency le- legislation, the declaration of an emergency. So we can get more on that from a Daily Wire article from last month. Amy Coney Barrett asks key COVID-19 question, when will the emergency end? Which notes that Elizabeth Preloger, the U.S. Solicitor General arguing on behalf of the Biden administration in this case, maintains that OSHA is simply exercising the power that Congress gave it under the Occupational Safe and Health, Safe, Safety and Health Act of 1970, which directs OSHA to issue emergency rules when it determines that a rule is necessary to protect employees from a grave danger from exposure to physically harmful agents or new hazards, because COVID-19 meets these comments and threatens unvaccinated workers. As for why OSHA can enact this without comment from Congress, OSHA's emergency rules can go into effect immediately without the notice and comment procedures normally required for agency rulemaking, SCOTUS blog added. However, Barrett pressured pro-mandate attorneys as to when the emergency would end so that Congress could formally weigh in on the OSHA ruling. When does the emergency end? I mean, a lot of this argument has been about Congress's failure to act. Two years from now, do we have any reason to think that COVID will be gone or that new variants might not be emerging? Coney Barrett asked. And when? When must OSHA actually resort to its regular authority and go through notice and comment and not simply be kind of doing it in this quick way, which doesn't afford people the voice in the process that there are they, they are otherwise entitled to? All right, excellent questions. Yeah, what is the basis for this emergency declaration? How long does it last? What are the specific, measurable, objective criteria by which we can say the emergency period is over and normal lawmaking can go on again? And wait, what does what does it mean if these laws have these giant loopholes and backdoors and emergency clauses that, oh, well, you know, in times of emergency, yeah, throw it out the window. All of these, all of these processes that we have don't mean anything. Hmm. It's almost like there's a, a gigantic can of worms that is being opened here, but we can't stop there. Of course, again, it's not just Canada. It's not just the United States. It is taking place all around the world. For example, in Australia, where the state of Victoria has recently proposed a pandemic management bill that is sending shivers down the spines of people with their heads screwed on straight and even some lawyers, <laughs> as pointed out in a recent edition of the uh, the daily update from uh, The Last American Vagabond by Ryan Christian. One of the most alarming bills I think I've ever seen in the context of this, but really, I mean, really just in general, like this is an incredible overreach. Here's the actual, here's the the information itself. You can read through it, but this article does a great job encapsulating it all. Rule of Law Education Center goes over this. That Victorian pandemic management bill from November 2nd. I hadn't seen this. This is crazy to me. The Victorian government's latest pandemic legislation, the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment Pandemic Management Bill 2021 has been the subject of some serious concern within the legal profession. In an open letter signed by some of Victoria's leading skills, excuse me, leading silks, that's weird, 
in states, maybe that's a, a term for some, like a, a position. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. The overriding concern they state is that the bill, if passed, may allow the Victorian government effectively to rule the state of Victoria by decree for the foreseeable future without proper parliamentary oversight or the usual checks and balances on executive power. It says, we've always viewed this as a rule of law issue, not as a political issue. There are no real checks and balances in the legislation. There's no oversight at all by parliament. Does that sound like a government? Or does it sound like the illusion of a process? And really, they're just people that are unelected technocrats that are driving positions and your decisions in your government. In the interview with Mr. Chris Bladen, CQ states, this is legislation that any sensible person reading it would argue, would agree, excuse me, this is legislation that any sensible person reading it would agree has very extensive powers given to the government and those powers on occasion are necessary. But this is, an, this is enshrining in legislation powers without the necessary checks and balances. Powers that can't be taken away without the approval of people that put them in place. That's what's happening. Mean, meaning it'll never go away. It's the Patriot Act in, in Canada going forward. It is a mystery why this has to be pushed through so quickly. Not really a mystery at all. And why there hasn't been time given to discuss, debate, etc. how those powers should be controlled by the parliament. This is crazy. There's a reason why it's, this is being pushed in and everywhere. Because they don't want you to think about this. They want it to be rushed in under a guise of we're all going to die. So you don't think about it. Which is exactly what happened with the Patriot Act and everything else. Anthrax drove that forward as well. The, the, the psyop that that was. They fear-mongered people into rushing something in that they knew would destroy this country. In the ways they wanted it to. Yep, Australia too. Yes, of course. Jurisdiction after jurisdiction around the globe is now looking at a precisely such legislation, or at least fiat decrees by the would-be tyrants of the world who are slobbering all over themselves, licking their chops, ready to assume dictatorial powers in the name of the never-ending emergency, Australia obviously being no exception. So for those who are interested in more specifics about this, I will put the link into the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment pending, Pandemic Management Bill 2021 from uh, legislation.vic.gov.au. I will also put in that ruleoflaw.org.au uh, link that Ryan Christian was reading from there with much more information about this bill and what it contains, where in the Q&A on the proposed pandemic bill, it says, will lockdowns continue in this new bill? And it answers, the premier and health minister will have absolute unreviewable power to indefinitely keep Victorians in lockdown. This can be done even if there are zero cases in Victoria and can be for an indefinite period of time. The good news is, the Premier will give you the reasons as to why he believes it's an emergency, but sadly you or anyone else in Parliament cannot disagree with his reasoning as long as he is satisfied there is a serious risk to public health from the potential pandemic. Now, is it starting to get through? Is is it starting... Are, you, are the pieces falling into place here? Do you understand now a little bit better those opening quotations from those long-dead scholars? What do they know about necessity has no law? Do you understand what that means now and what it looks like and what that actually is as a lived experience on the ground? Because that is exactly what we are living through right now. You can see it with your own two eyes. And it doesn't get better than this. If history has shown us anything, in fact... This ruleoflaw.org.au article starts with a little quick history lesson where they explain some of the history of these ideas of emergency powers. Don't worry, it's just temporary. It's just during this state of emergency. Uh, in, in here, they give this little history lesson. They say, the ancient Romans, after the expulsion of the Tarquins, became stout republicans. But they accepted the situation that in times of danger, the state must might be run temporarily by one person who could mobilize resources quickly and efficiently. They would elect a dictator, which is the first use of the term, and at that time meant no more than leader, with special powers which he was expected to relinquish when the danger had passed. And he did. The famous Fabius Maximus, having finally defeated the Carthaginians under Hannibal, handed his power back to the Republic and retired to his Sabine farm. Later Romans were not so lucky, and they ended up getting lovable characters like Nero and Caligula. 
Well, I, I wonder which which uh, historical personages our current would-be misleaders take after the most. Oh, we'll relinquish all of these powers as soon as the state of emergency has passed, right? Or are these the types of people who have studied this history? Unlike most of the general population, they know this history and what it means and know about the juridical order itself being founded upon these moments of aporia of emergency situations. Well, we have to throw everything out the window because necessity has no law. Well, it gets worse, unfortunately, because I'm here today to tell you that what we are experiencing right now and what you can see taking place in place after place around the world, Ottawa, Victoria, wherever, is not just some tiny historical contingency that is based on this one emergency that we're all living through. Whether you believe in it or not, it'll be over in a year or two and we'll all go back to normal, right? Wrong. Because if the 21st century has not knocked this into your head yet, I guarantee it will, we are now living in under a new governance paradigm, the forever emergency. Em- government by emergency is the new paradigm. All of these laws, all of these new civilization transformational events and, and pieces of paper that are being passed by legislatures right now are being done so in the name of these emergencies. And the emergencies will come and go. In fact, they might not even come, but they will be told that they came. Um, But that doesn't really matter. It's being baked into the cake right now. And we will get back to more of the historical perspective on this and what it can teach us about the way forward. But first, I want to underline this point of the forever emergency being the new paradigm of governance in the 21st century, because this is a point that I have made before, but let me make it again. Let's go to the list of national emergencies in the United States, where you can scroll down and you can see all of the officially declared national emergencies uh, in the United States, uh, going back all the way to the 19-teens with Woodrow Wilson and the emergency in water transportation of the United States. So this goes quite a ways back. And as you will see, the first several of these emergencies have since come to an end. They lasted years, sometimes decades, but they came to an end. Until you get down to... Carter? Jimmy Carter? But I I heard he's an angel. He's a saint. What what kind of national emergency that he was presiding over could still be in a... Oh! Blocking Iranian government property. Yes. Oh, Executive Order 12170 ordered the freezing of Iranian assets as part of the U.S. response during the Iran hostage crisis. Still an officially declared emergency in the United States. <laughs> so still in operation. And then when you start getting down to the Clintons, the Clinton uh, executive orders, well, yeah, there you go. Proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Prohibiting transaction with terrorists who threaten to disrupt the Middle East peace process. Prohibiting certain transactions with respect to the development of Iranian petroleum resources, etc., etc. All still valid, still operable emergencies. You get down to Bush. Well, of course. June 2001, blocking property of persons who threaten international stabilization efforts in the Western Balkans. You better believe that national emergency is still in effect. Or the August 2001 Declaration of Continuation of Export Control Regulations reasserted presidential control of exports of defense articles following the expiration of the Export Administration Act of 1979. You better believe that national emergency is still in effect. And uh, uh, what was the... What was the next one that happened? Oh, that's right. September 14th, 2001. Declaration of national emergency by reason of certain terrorist attacks. Certain terrorist attacks took place. And now we are in an officially declared state of emergency that has been renewed every single year by every single president. And here's here's the story that I think ties it together in a way that paints the picture. James, what do you and I usually cover on New World Next Week, or at least we mention every single year around the 9-11 anniversary, we note dot dot dot. Well, you already said the the missing trillions. Yes, but but we note that the puppet-in-chief in the Oval Office signs a little thing that says the 9-11 emergency 
is still ongoing, right? Every year we note that. We forgot to do that this year, but I will throw it in the show notes. Notice on the continuation of the national emergency with respect to certain terrorist attacks from September 9th, 2021, Joseph Biden uh, putting his uh, John Hancock on, because the terrorist threat continues, the national emergency declared on September 14th, 2001, and the powers and authorities adopted to deal with that emergency must continue in effect beyond September 14th, 2021. Therefore, I am continuing in effect for an additional year, the national emergency that would blah, blah, blah. Yep. Uh, uh, Look, do you see what happened? 20 years ago, we need a national emergency and we need these special emergency powers to be renewed every single year. And they've got to sign it every single year. And they do. And guess what? Guess what was signed on February 24th of 2021? A letter on the continuation of the national emergency concerning the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic. Joseph R. Biden putting his name to it. There remains a need to continue this national emergency. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to cause significant risk, blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing. It's the same agenda. We've talked about it before. This is not new, but let's drill it home. Homeland security to biosecurity and the trillions that we are now allowed to be outraged about that we even know about um, with regards to the last scam that played out. Now we can talk about that and we can direct our ire at those companies. The one that is currently playing out, you will be censored off the face of the planet and probably thrown into a camp and you probably deserve it, you horrible, unclean person, if you so much as raise a question about the current scamdemic. Is it starting to make sense now? This is not some temporary emergency that we are living through. This is a generated crisis that is being used to establish a new system of governance. This is a point that I have been trying to make now for the last couple of years, and hopefully it is starting to get through to people. But once again, I'm going to turn to Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher who wrote Where Are We Now? The Epidemic is Politics, which is really a collection of interviews and essays that he's written along the way. A very slim volume. It's only about 90 pages, but exceptionally dense, exceptionally interesting, definitely worth reading. I've read quotes and passages from it before, but let me read a little bit more. I want to highlight what Agamben has been saying since the very, 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 very beginning of this, and he is in a position to know, because as we will see, he has written specifically about the state of exception. We will get more into that in a moment. But first, let's read from The Invention of an, e- of an Epidemic, which was first published in Il Manifesto on the 26th of February, 2020. As we face the frenetic, irrational, and unprovoked emergency measures adopted against a supposed epidemic, we should turn to the National Research Council, the CNR, in uh, presumably the Italian abbreviation, not only confirms that an epidemic of SARS-CoV-2 is not present in Italy, but that, in any case, the infection, according to the epidemiological data available today for tens of thousands of cases, causes mild-moderate symptoms, a sort of influenza in 80-90% to of cases. 10-15% to can develop pneumonia, but even then, that progress in most cases is benign. It is calculated that only 4% of incidents need to be hospitalized in intensive care. If this is the case... Why do the media and the authorities go out of their way to cultivate a climate of panic, establishing a state of exception which imposes severe limitations on mobility and suspends the normal functioning of life and work? Two clues might explain this disproportionate response. Firstly, we're dealing with a growing tendency to trigger a state of exception as the standard paradigm of governance. The legislative decree immediately approved by the government for public health and security reasons resulted in an actual militarization of the municipalities and the areas where at least one person is positive and where the source of transmission is unknown or in any instance where there is a case not ascribable to a person coming from an area already affected by the virus. Such a vague and indeterminate formula will allow for the rapid diffusion of the state of exception to all regions, given that other cases are bound to occur elsewhere. Ding, ding, ding. Well, Agamben was completely right about that, wasn't he? And then he says, let's look at the severe limitations on freedom levied by the decree. And he goes through prohibition on exiting a municipality or affected area, prohibition on accessing municipality or affected area, suspension of events or initiatives of any nature, suspension of childcare services, closure of museums, suspension of educational trips, suspension of open competitive exams, application of quarantine measures. 
And he says this dis- disproportionate response to something the CNR considers to be a normal flu, not too dissimilar to the ones that recur every year, is absurd. We could argue that once terrorism ceased to exist as a cause for measures of exception, the invention of an epidemic offers the ideal pretext for widening them beyond all known limits. And moving forward in this, I would like to also read a piece from Polemos Epidemios, which I read recently on the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, but I would like to put it here on record as well, where Agamben says, an epidemic as is suggested by its etymological roots in the Greek term demos, which designates the people as a political body, is first and foremost a political concept. In Homer, polemos epidemios is the civil war. What we see today is that the epidemic is becoming the new terrain of politics, the battleground of a global civil war. Because a civil war is a war against an internal enemy, one which lives inside of ourselves. He goes on to say, it is important to understand that biosecurity, both in its efficacy and in its pervasiveness, outdoes every form of governance that we have hitherto known. As we have been able to see here in Italy, but not only here, as soon as a threat to health is declared, people unresistingly consent to limitations on their freedom that they would never have accepted in the past. We are facing a paradox. The end of all social relations and political activity is presented as the exemplary form of civic participation. And he goes on to say, The biosecurity paradigm is not temporary. Economic activity will resume, it already is resuming, and limitations on movement will end, at least for the most part. What will remain is social distancing. We need to think about this singular formulation, which appeared at the same time across the entire world as if it had been prepared in advance. The formula is not physical or personal distancing, as it would have been if it was just a medical term. No, but social distancing. It could not be communicated more clearly that this is a new paradigm of societal organization, that is, of an essentially political structure. I could go on. I I really do want to go on. I want to go and quote this entire book to you. I hope you will go out and read that book because I think it encapsulates this entire problem perfectly. It encapsulates what we are really facing, what is really at stake, what is really happening. If we don't understand where are we now, then how on earth will we know where we are going? So, where are we going? What can be done about this, this clockwork machinery that has been set in motion. Oh, look at the necessity created by this emergency. We have to declare a state of exception. Here's the declaration. Now we can do whatever we want to you. It's the rules. (laughs) What do we do about that? Mm, I know. Let's, Let's take the tyrants to court to preserve our democracy. So I'm particularly um, the lawsuit challenging the, the government's program of banning travel by train and plane by Canadians. In other words, we can't travel across our own nation. And the Section 6 says mobility, the right of every Canadian to travel anywhere in Canada or leave Canada. That's what yes. the section says. And that's the exact words of, of section. So therefore, that's what we are pursuing now in the courts in the next couple of days, in the next few weeks, and hopefully we'll get a decision. We're asking for an expedited decision in the next three or four months. So this will fundamentally challenge the approach that the federal government is taking on responding to this so-called pandemic. And therefore, we'll, we'll put into question uh, this whole notion of using Section 1 of the Charter to override these rights and freedoms. If us as First Ministers, uh, Dr. Peterson, had wanted to just have uh, protecting rights and freedoms that could easily be changed, we wouldn't have gone to the Constitution. We would have just said, right. put an act, just put an act in the federal parliament and put acts in all the parliaments, and then up to the whim of the political party at the time to change it. We wanted to safeguard it so that it was beyond the whim of political machinations and therefore could not be changed only in the most extreme circumstances. So what we're really concerned about and what I'm really concerned about is if this is not, if our charter is not upheld and then honored and these freedoms and and rights 
honor, then the next, and therefore we lose, the next time around when there's an emergency two or three years from now, or one, or the government decides and declares that there is an emergency, they can use this as a precedent, and the charter becomes further diluted, and then our rights and freedoms as individuals has been destroyed, and that section of being a democracy is no more. For those not in the know, that was Brian Peckford, who has been billed on various podcasts he's appeared on lately as the last surviving architect of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, who has joined the aforementioned JCCF, the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedom, in suing the federal government, the Canadian federal government, over their COVID vaccine mandates for all travellers, air travellers in Canada, which is one of the many reasons why I... I'm not going to Canada, and presumably not until those laws are repealed, at any rate. Um, so for more info on that specifically, you can go to the JCCF website, jccf.ca, for their press release on this from the 26th of January of this year. The Charter's only living signatory sues Canada over travel mandates, which notes that the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms today filed a lawsuit in federal court seeking to strike down the federal government's mandatory COVID-19 vaccine requirements for air travellers. The court action is on behalf of several Canadians from across Canada whose charter rights and freedoms have been infringed. And you can go and read through about this case and what the next steps are. And far be it from me to dissuade anyone from taking any action that they think will honestly help to derail or even, even stop for a moment this agenda. I'm not here to rain on anyone's parade. I'm not here to try to stop anyone as if I could from supporting those actions that they think might be beneficial. So by all means, go to the JCCF page, read about the case, donate to the JCCF if you're excited about this. But you will excuse me for being a little bit cynical about the ultimate, whether this is really striking at the root of the problem. It's not It's not no great sin that every solution isn't the silver bullet that will completely topple the system. And sometimes we do simply need the court injunctions to say, no, you cannot do this. And that's, that's something that's not to be scoffed at. But it doesn't seem to be, to me, striking at the root of the problem. And... Obviously, I, I would like to think my regular listeners would know some of the statements in that conversation there with Brian Peckford that I think raise my eyebrow a little bit. Democracy is no more only in the most extreme circumstances. Even his equivocation on when there's an emergency or the government decides and declares that there is an emergency, it, it seems to be that Peckford is gesturing to the idea, of course, there are real necess necessities. There are real states of emergency that really do require these kinds of incredibly uh, dictatorial powers, but not this one. I mean, the government has declared it, but that doesn't mean it's really true. So again, it becomes this existential question, this ontological question of determining the facticity of the event that's taking place and whether it does meet some sort of platonic ideal of emergency to justify the state of exception that's being implied here. That doesn't seem to me that that really gets to the roots of this. So what what is happening here and how do we get to the root of this so that we can actually do something about this problem in and of itself, the actual problem? Again, in order to even begin answering that question, we have to understand the problem in its entirety. And we cannot do that just off based off of what we learned in back in our public indoctrination uh, back when we were children, and what we've picked up from a newspaper report here and there along the way. That is not how this works. We have to know the history of this, where it comes from, what it means. And in order to do that, you might start at a book like State of Exception by Giorgio Agamben. Because as I mentioned earlier, Giorgio Agamben has literally written a book on states of exception, um, specifically the uh, the state of exception um as a paradigm for governance, but uh, the book was called State of Exception. It was published in 2005 and clearly published in the context of the homeland security state, the erection of the homeland security state that was clearly taking place in that time in the early 2000s. That was, I think, the hallmark of this new age of government by emergency. Not that government by emergency is itself new, but that this is now the primary form of governance or the primary form going forward. And Agamben was 
specifically, I think, writing to that, as evidenced by some of the passages from State of Exception. For example, in chapter 1, section 1.3, where he says, the immediately biopolitical significance of the State of Exception as the original structure in which law encompasses living beings by means of its own suspension emerges clearly in the military order issued by the President of the United States on November 13, 2001, which authorized the indefinite detention and trial by military commissions, not to be confused with the military tribunals provided for by the law of war, of non-citizens suspected of involvement in terrorist activities. The USA Patriot Act, issued by the U.S. Senate on October 26, 2001, already allowed the Attorney General to take into custody any alien suspected of activities that endangered the national security of the United States. But within seven days, the alien had to be either released or charged with the violation of immigration laws or some other criminal offense. What is new about President Bush's order is that it radically erases any legal status of the individual, thus producing a legally unnameable and unclassifiable being. Not only do the Taliban captured in Afghanistan not enjoy the status of POWs as defined by the Geneva Convention, they do not even have the status of persons charged with a crime according to American laws. Neither prisoners nor persons accused, but simply detainees. They are the object of a pure de facto rule, of a detention that is indefinite, not only in the temporal sense, but in its very nature as well, since it is entirely removed from the law and from judicial oversight. Uh, It doesn't take a great deal of imagination to transcribe that terminology from the War of Terror homeland security state to the bioterror biosecurity state that we are living through right now, where now it isn't the terrorists per se, although Obviously, that still exists as the convenient canard for the erection of this state of emergency. But also, of course, now it's the asymptomatic spreaders. It's the sick until proven healthy. It's an it's entirely insidious paradigm, which, as Agamben states in Where Are We Now, is the basis for civil war, the internal enemy that must be rooted out one way or another, and we need these emergency powers to do it. Now, I cannot possibly do justice to a book like State of Exception in just a couple of minutes here on a podcast. I wholeheartedly do recommend this study with the caveat. It is for people who (laughs) exist in that extremely rare Venn diagram overlap of legal historians and scholars and philosophers and historians. And (laughs) if you're, if that's your wheelhouse, boy, have I got a book for you. I found it absolutely fascinating, but it is dense and it does have a, a lot of deep dive material on the history of various judicial orders and legal scholars and what they thought. And more importantly, it isn't just legal history. It's actually the philosophy undergirding this legal history. It's it's a fascinating study. And just parenthetically, I mean, it was worth the price of admission just for his, uh, Agamben's theory, which was the most original and most convincing that I've ever heard of the development of the Saturnalian Karivari and carnivals of the ancient and the medieval worlds. Um, just fascinating stuff. But dot, dot, dot. Cole's notes. Let's skip to the end. Here's the rub. So towards the end of the book, after laying out all of this history of various states of exception and emergency and how they came about and how they were instituted and what they mean and what what legal scholarship they relied on or didn't rely on or what scholars said about them and all of this, he says that the juridical system of the West appears as a double structure formed by two heterogeneous yet coordinated elements one that is normative and juridical in the strict sense, which we can for convenience inscribe under the rubric potestas, and one that is anomic and metajuridical, which we can call by the name octoritus. The normative element needs the anomic element in order to be applied, but on the other hand, octoritus can assert itself only in the validation or suspension of potestas. Because it results from the dialectic between these two somewhat antagonistic, yet functionally connected elements, the ancient dwelling of law is fragile, and in straining to maintain its own order, is always already in the process of ruin and decay. The state of exception is the device that must ultimately articulate and hold together the two aspects of the juridico-political machine by instituting a threshold of undecidability between enemy and nomos 
between life and law, between auctoritas and potestas. It is founded on the essential fiction according to which enemy, in the form of auctoritas, living law, or the force of law, is still related to the juridical order, and the power to suspend the norm has an immediate hold on life. As long as the two elements remain correlated, yet conceptually, temporally, and subjectively distinct, as in Republican Rome's contrast between the Senate and the people, or in medieval Europe's contrast between spiritual and temporal powers, their dialectic, though founded on a fiction, can nevertheless function in some way. But when they tend to coincide in a single person, when the state of exception in which they are bound and blurred together becomes the rule, then the juridical political system transforms itself into a killing machine. Absolutely right, and unfortunately, when you do look at the history of the ways that these states of exception have functioned in history, you find that is no mere euphemism. That is more often than not very true, that these states of exception are used to expurgate the enemy, which sometimes may be a virus, but sometimes is more accurately the people who are spreading the virus, the people we don't like, ultimately become the the objects that will be uh, fed into the maw of the killing machine. And, and where does this ultimately lead all of, the, all of us? And what, what, is the, what is the aim of this? Well, he goes on uh, towards the end to uh, talk about the task at hand is not to bring the state of exception back within its spatially and temporally defined boundaries in order to then reaffirm the primacy of a norm and of rights that are, ultimate, uh, that are themselves ultimately grounded in it. And no, of course not. So what is the, the ultimate purpose of this? Well, towards the very end of the book, he says, to show law in its non-relation to life and life in its non-relation to law means to open a space between them for human action which once claimed for itself the name of politics. Politics has suffered a lasting eclipse because it has been contaminated by law, seeing itself at best as constituent power, that is, violence that makes law, when it is not reduced to merely the power to negotiate with the law. The only truly political action, however, is that which severs the nexus between violence and law, and only beginning from the space thus opened will it be possible to pose the question of a possible use of law after the deactivation of the device that, in the state of exception, tied it to life. We will then have before us a pure law, in the sense in which Benjamin, Walter Benjamin, speaks of a pure language and a pure violence, to a word that does not bind, that neither commands nor prohibits anything, but says only itself would correspond an action as pure means which shows only itself without any relation to an end. And between the two, not a lost original state, but only the use and human praxis that the powers of law and myth had sought to capture in the state of exception. All right, as I say, incredibly dense material that I'm sure decontextified from, from all, decontextualized from the rest of the book might not make immediate sense. There is a lot going on here. Um, but suffice it to say that a writer who can actually make a committed and avowed voluntarist who sees no use in politics whatsoever to reconceptualize and reframe what politics should be, not what it has become, violence that makes law or the power to negotiate with the law, uh, to, to frame it, the only true political action, however, is that which severs the nexus between violence and law. You know, I start to think that's a politics I can get behind. But what does that mean in our current environment? What, how do we go about doing that? I'm afraid if you're looking for the one, two, three step process here, uh, that's not coming. That's not forthcoming at the moment. We are all actors in this, the, the, the gaping maw of this killing machine that is being set up for us. And what do we do about that? Well, we resist it in every way we can, and we put ourselves as the we we put ourselves in the the mechanism of the machine to stop it from functioning at all, in order to open up the space for that true political action, the severing of that connection between violence and the law. 
a pretty tall task, as you might uh, be able to admit, but uh, unfortunately one that is more necessary now than it perhaps has ever been in our lifetimes, and without, without being hyperbolic about it, perhaps in human history. And I'll just point to where this is, where we all know this is going, and what this means, and how this comes together. But here's one example of that, literally ripped out of the headlines from just the past couple of days. Activistpost.com posted up on February 9th, 2022. The Department of Homeland Security suggests those who spread misleading narratives that undermine trust in the U.S. government are terrorists. The Department of Homeland Security on Monday issued a bulletin warning of a heightened terrorism alert in the United States. One of the key factors for the heightened threat, which the DHS considers terrorism, is the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions. And I would suggest that you go on to actually read the bulletin itself, which is linked up in this article, which, of course, underlines the connection quite clearly, where they say the key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment include, number one, the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in U.S. government institutions, colon, for example... There is widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Of course, of course, this is this is what I've, I certainly have been screaming my head off about for the past 15 years. I know many other people have been screaming their heads off about it for even longer than myself, but the entire mechanism of the Department of Homeland Security and this entire terror paradigm has always been pointed at you. You are the ones that are the target of this and of this entire, not just this particular set of laws or this particular thing. No, the entire state of exception has been created to encompass you. And if you want to look long-term at where this ultimately leads, because this is a dialectic leading us through a process, through a process of crisis towards transformation. It gets crazy. And I think from our perspective today in 2022, this still sounds crazy, but lead us through enough crises and you better believe people will be begging for this. Greattransition.org has a post up from November of 2021. The Great Transition requires the Earth Constitution. Planet Earth struggles in a state of fragmentation and lawlessness. The COVID-19 pandemic has underscored the catastrophic failure of an every-country-for-itself approach to public health and national economic interests rather than global needs continues to dominate discussions of climate policy, paving the path toward climate chaos. Coordination has never been so needed, yet so lacking. A broader framework of disorder exacerbates this fragmentation. Nation-state actors have declared their right to assassinate persons anywhere in the world thought to be enemy combatants by secret evidence without trial or any due process of law. Big money influences how laws are made in nearly every country. Industrial military complexes encourage a war mentality and mass media propaganda encourage the, seeing the world as full of enemies and security threats. Yeah, right. So, dot, dot, dot. The capitalist system cultivates both egoism and an unlimited expansionist economic model that has wrought havoc on our finite planet with its multiple intersecting, delicately balanced ecosystems. Unless the people of Earth take tar charge through a true democratic system, more powerful than multinational corporations, big money, global private bank banking, or militarized imperial nation-states, our planet has little hope for a transformed future. You, you do know where this is going, right? Uh, let's skip through a little bit. The fundamental flaw of the UN Charter is that it is based on the Westphalian system of sovereign states, recognizing no binding laws above themselves, a 17th century artifact. 
And it goes on to say, world law is an absolute imperative for the future of humanity, not only as coordinator and educator, but as transformer. It is both a means to the next step in human evolution and a milestone within that evolutionary process. Law at the world level inspires universality, world citizenship, species consciousness, and focus on our common global problems and yada, 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 bada bing, bada boom, written and refined over a period of 23 years from 1968 to 1991, the Constitution for the Federation of Earth offers a concrete vision and a path forward to democratic world law, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Global government, what a surprise! And by the way, we've been working on it for half a century, and here's the drafted feder Constitution for the Federated Earth that you've never heard of before, but it's already here. And look at how, how amazingly this state of emergency feeds on itself. Because we all recognize we cannot live in this continuing paradigm of emergency, emergency, crisis, crisis. And it lists all of those things, which are, of course, very valid. Yes, you have presidents saying, well, we can assassinate whoever we want at any time. We just, I just sign a piece of paper on my uh, threat matrix kill list and I, I can do that. Or uh, the, the industrial, military industrial complex engaging and fostering a war mentality, mass media encouraging people to see the world as full of enemies and security threats. Yes, crisis, crisis, crisis. Aren't you sick of it? You know how to end it? To put all of this under the control of one body. Take all of this problem and mess, this disorder, this chaos, and bring order from it. Hmm, I wonder where I've heard that before. Anyway, this is how it works. To continually escalate the crises so that at the end of that road, Someone will offer you a way out. All you have to do is give all the power of the world to this one body. Don't worry, it's got a it's got a constitution, it has has multi-cameral legislature, and it's all worked out, it's checks and balances, and don't worry, don't worry about it. Just trust us. Where would we ever lead you astray? <laughs> anyway, this is the vision of the future in the eyes of the would-be dictators. Emergency, crisis, necessity. We have to take these powers for this moment, just for this moment, just so that we can set things up. Don't worry, you'll get your lives back when we allow it, when we decide that the emergency is over. If we let this stand, if we let this pass, game over. I don't know what else to say. So. Having said that, as I say, I am not here to rain on anyone's parade. I am not here to dissuade anyone from pushing any of the buttons that they think might do something to stop this killing machine from functioning. Absolutely. And if you think, that it, it, even if it will not derail the machine entirely, if it will at least impede its progress, at least a little, deter it from its course by 0 0.01 degrees, then do it. Yes, Sue the Canadian federal government. Take them to court. Sure. Yes. Freedom convoy. Truckers. Get together. Sure. Uh, yes. 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 All of these things. Yes. But we cannot let this stand. And we must defy these emergency orders. We must defy these emergency orders now while we have the chance. Do not let the would-be dictators get away with their strategic withdrawal. We'll do this. We'll impose all of these emergency measures. Then we'll release them. See? What was the big deal? Oh, you conspiracy theorists. Oh, look at you hyperventilating. What's, what are you so scared of? Hey, the, the new Austrian law that is requiring every single person, every single eligible citizen in Austria to be vaccinated, triple vaxxed with COVID experimental injections right now and that is going into effect and they're rolling out the machinery, including hiring people to go and be the people checking in the streets and checking to make sure you have all of your COVID papers in order, literally happening in Austria. Don't worry, it's scheduled at least at this point, it's scheduled to sunset in January 2024. So after a couple of years of literal jackboots on the street stopping you and checking to make sure that you have your medical injections that have been ordered by the state, don't worry, it'll end in January 2024. And what if it does? What if it does go on till that point and then they say, you know what, emergency over, guys. You can go back. 
All we have done is allowed them to set the precedent. We cannot allow this precedent to stand. Every single person who understands the gravity of this needs to be fighting back against this at every level right now. There is no time to wait. I hope I have gone some way further towards explaining what it is I mean when I say the biosecurity state is here and they are erecting the biosecurity grid. This is the new form of governance for the planet. I hope it has become more understandable and I hope that at the very least, some people will start arming themselves with a better understanding of what that means by turning to the sources I've mentioned today. For example, Agamben's Where Are We Now? or his State of Exception. I think these are important things for us to be talking about and understanding. That's going to do it for today. Lots and lots of resources in the show notes. I hope you will avail yourselves of them. CorbettReport.com slash emergency. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again very shortly.